0: Hezberg, an award-winning documentary film opening in select theaters nationwide on May 3rd. Hezberg offers a fascinating look at more than 50 years of American history, as seen through the eyes of Father Theodore Martin Hezberg, longtime president of the University of Notre Dame and America's most well-known Catholic priest. Critics are calling Hezberg a powerful and extraordinary film about one of America's all-time greatest educators. Group sales available. More information at Hesbergfilm.com. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis.
1: Happy Easter, Olga. Happy Easter, Ashley. you really It's the Easter season. season, yeah. yeah. Happy <laughs> Easter, Zach. <laughs> We're out of the octave, but the Easter season lives on.
0: It does, and what are we drinking for that?
1: So, in honor of the Easter season, we are drinking some Prosecco, because the the bubbles rising remind us that Christ also rises from the dead. Yes. He That's, is risen.
0: On That's Easter poetic. and every day. Thank
1: you. Thank you. <laughs> cheers cheers Cheers, guys all right it's good it is
2: good who are we talking to olga this week we're talking with kate bowler a writer and author of the new york times best-selling memoir everything happens for a reason and other lies i've loved She's
0: also a professor of Christian history at Duke Divinity School. Uh, and as a historian of religion, one of the topics she covers is the prosperity gospel.
1: Yes. And the prosperity gospel is this theology or a belief that if we pray enough or if we're good enough, then God's going to send good things our way. You know, either it's wealth money or, or health or good health. And it's something that we've earned because of what we've done.
2: Yeah. And in her memoir, she looks at the prosperity gospel from a very personal perspective. She describes being diagnosed with stage four colon cancer and explores the prosperity gospel and what it's like to contemplate your own mortality.
1: Yeah. This is the, one of the most moving things I read in mm-hmm. 2018. I, I mean, Same. I, it's a super relatable thing where, you know, you, you're, you're met with this horrible news about illness of a loved one. And, and you're wondering, you know, did God make this happen? Is there a reason for this?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, and she's really—it's a very raw look at the experience of you know going through this horrible thing and having people giving you like really harmful advice, saying yeah. like, "There's a reason why why you have cancer at age thirty-five when you just gave birth to your first son." And so, yeah, it's a it's a really powerful book, um, and we were so grateful that she came onto the show.
1: And in addition to writing. Everything Happens for a Reason, she has an upcoming book that's a historical look at the prosperity gospel, not a personal memoir like the first one. Um, And this one's called The Preacher's Wife, The Precarious Power of Evangelical Women Celebrities. And that offers a look into the world of Christian women leaders like Beth Moore and Victoria Austin. And so we get into that and more in the interview.
0: So stay tuned for that. But first, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Uh, First, we were we were on break when the horrible terror attacks in Sri Lanka happened. So we just wanted to give an update on what's going on there. Um, these, these were the attacks on churches and hotels that happened on Easter, killing about 250 people. Uh, since then, churches are still closed uh, indefinitely. People have been, you know, having watching mass on TV. The cardinal did a private. Uh, Service at his own residence that was broadcast throughout the country.
1: Yeah, and then there is a rural diocese too that sort of managed to hold hold mass despite uh, a lot of churches being closed. And this is just a really part a part of a really terrible trend of uh, extremist violence in religious spaces. You, we had the attack on the mosque in Christchurch, uh, the synagogue in California, the the black churches in uh, the South, and we're praying for an end to all of this extremist violence and uh, hoping that religious unity can bring us together.
0: Yeah. What's
2: our next story, Zach?
1: Our next story is that there are big changes coming to the Vatican's Roman Curia.
2: So for those of you who might have been like me and thought that the Roman Curia was just some church document, um, <laughs> what is the Roman Curia, Zach?
1: So I uh, it's basically the... A collection of offices at the Vatican that go by different names, their congregations, their pontifical councils, dicasteries, academies, etc. Uh, the Vatican's website has 56 different ones. And is there anything from, some of them you might recognize, like the Congregation uh, for the Doctrine of the Faith, which um, is in charge of the teaching of the church. There's um, congregations that are in charge of who gets canonized a saint and who doesn't.
0: Yeah. So the Curia is basically like the bureaucracy of the Vatican. And one of Pope Francis's major goals when he became Pope in 2013 was to reform the Curia because it was seen as many as outdated and an impediment to other changes in the church.
1: And there's basically the shift is going to come through this document that's coming out that's going to reorganize how all of them are used and brought together.
0: Right. And so one of the big things is there's going to be a new emphasis on evangelization. Two of the current congregations are going to be combined into what they're calling a super dicastery. Um, And so Traditionally, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has been seen as the most important congregation. Um, and with this shift, the shift is ta- going from, you know, protecting church teaching and enforcing orthodoxy to evangelization, both in mission territory and in places where Christianity is kind of losing steam.
1: And there's the second shift that people are expecting from this is that this is going to open up roles for lay people in the church. Traditionally, These offices have been held by cardinals or archbishops, and this document will either explicitly or implicitly allow for uh, lay leadership in these at the Vatican. What's our next story, Olga?
2: So this past weekend, Pope Francis has donated $500,000 to organizations in Mexico that are helping migrants with things like lodging, basic needs, or even food. And these funds are coming from Peter Spence Collection.
1: Yeah, and that's actually one of the offices of the Mm -hmm. Roman Curia, and it's— I was actually surprised when I saw the headline. I was like, oh, obviously this is a good cause. Um, It's great that Pope Francis is paying attention to this, but where did did this $500,000 come from, right? Turns out Peter's Pence is where if people make donations to the Vatican, it all goes to this fund. And it's sort of the Pope can apply it where he sees fit to different causes around And the goal
2: is to provide Pope Francis with the financial resources to help people all around the world that are affected by things like oppression, war, or natural disasters.
0: Yeah. And so Pope Francis, he has has these funds that he can, you know, use as he chooses. Um, and he, he saw that the there was less media coverage of the plight of migrants in Mexico. And so he decided he wanted to put his money there, not only to, you know, direct resources there and help people on the ground. But, but direct to,
1: clicks. Yes. <laughs> and headlines.
0: Yeah. Raise the profile of what's happening at
1: the border. What's our next story, Ashley.
0: A former church in the Bronx is being transformed into affordable housing. Um, St. Augustine Terrace was opened earlier this month uh, at a ceremony where Cardinal uh, Timothy Dolan was there to give his blessing. Um, And this is going to have 112 units of affordable housing for New Yorkers living below the poverty
1: line. Yeah, 77 are designated for families and 35 for people with chronic mental health issues.
2: Yeah, and people are really excited about this because the church is actually one of the largest private landowners in
1: New York. Right, which is kind of a thing you don't Really think about, mm-hmm. but um, there are a ton of churches, and there are a ton of old convents, and there are a ton of schools, and a lot of them aren't being used in the way that they used to be. And property is, for better or worse, in this world, um, a huge symbol of power, and we can use that power for something.
0: Yeah, no, I was really heartened by this by this development. Um, it's a good partnership between the state Mm -hmm. and the church. Uh, The state is providing money for, you know, for the affordable housing for the tenants who are staying there. And the church is using its resources, the space and also the social workers who are going to be providing mental health services to people living here.
1: Right. And if some of these buildings aren't being used for their original mission, they can still be used for the mission of the church.
2: What's next, Olga? So last week, Joe Biden announced that he will be running for president, which means that there are at least five Catholics running this year.
0: Yes, the other Catholics are Julian Castro, Kirsten Gillibrand, Beto O'Rourke and Tim Ryan.
1: Yeah. And so America noticed this trend. Like America other people, magazine. America magazine, not the country. <laughs> uh, confusing, especially in context like this, uh, that there have been Catholics running for president uh for for a long time since, uh, and John F. Kennedy was the first and the last. Well, um, not the
0: first to run, the not first to win. Not the first to run, win. the
1: first to win. And as the in, only. <laughs> the only to win. And so we compiled a listicle of major presidential candidates who were Catholic since JFK. Um, and I thought this was a good opportunity to ask a question for the three of us, is that would you vote for a candidate based on their religion, Catholic or otherwise?
0: Personally, I am automatically more sympathetic towards uh, Catholic candidates, um, I feel like I have, you know, maybe it's just a little bit of Catholic tribalism, but I feel like we we come from a shared tradition. Um, they We speak a similar language. Uh, and even if I don't agree with, that, with them on all policies, I feel like I at least have a higher authority that I can appeal to and be like, hey, you're Catholic. Right. You need to listen to what Pope mm-hmm. Francis is saying.
1: Right. True. And I, I guess I also had this emotional pull, but I realized that like Catholic tribalism doesn't mean a ton in the American political context because, I mean, there's just so many Catholics in both political parties. Yeah, that right? was an
0: interesting about the listicle, like from. Kennedy until like the 90s, all the Catholics were Democrats, basically. Mm -hmm. But since then, there's really a pretty even split between Republicans and Democrats uh, when it comes to Catholic politicians.
1: Yeah, but I I thought this was like a question about identity. And we have this conversation in context of race and sexuality a lot, but not as much in terms of religion. Olga, what did did you think about this question?
2: Honestly, I'm not inclined to vote for someone because they are Catholic or not. I I know that as a Catholic, there are things that I'm looking for in the candidates that I'm going to vote for. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm more focused on where they stand on certain policies, you know, and I think that it's not really helpful for me to kind of argue about how certain people identify, you know?
1: Right. And I guess that was my takeaway, too, that it's more useful to rather than just focus on someone's identity as a Catholic sort of, Okay. what are your policy positions that I agree with or I don't agree with? And if we have a shared tradition, we can, you know, appeal to that to talk about it. But it's much more about the you know brass tax policies that they're supporting in my mind.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I I, mean, I would definitely agree that it's not helpful to question someone's catholic faith just because you you may think that they are yeah, falling that's, short of catholic social teaching. Definitely
1: the least helpful in the in the discourse is who's the real catholic and who's not. Right.
2: Yeah. And I think it's a, for me, it becomes particularly unhelpful when bishops try to weigh in on these identity questions when I think they give really good guidance on issues like immigration and abortion.
1: So on the issues themselves rather than whether or not someone exactly. is a real Catholic mm-hmm. or
2: not. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like it does put people
0: in the pews in a really difficult position when a bishop comes out in favor or against a specific Or the candidate.
1: priest or yeah, yeah. in the and homilies.
0: Because it's like. In our two-party system, neither party is going to fully embrace all of Catholic social teaching. And voters are often in a very difficult situation. position of having to choose maybe the lesser of two evils or someone that they think is particularly good on immigration or pro-life issues. And it's never going to be perfect in our system.
1: Now, and religion and politics, not supposed to talk about either. But listeners, we want to hear your thoughts on both. Please send us an email on your thoughts about what, what do you think about a particular candidate's Catholicity? Does that affect the way you support them? Send us an email, Jesuitical at americamedia.org.
2: Guest is Kate Bowler, a professor of the history of Christianity in North America at Duke Divinity School. She won the Christopher Award for her book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Welcome to Jesuitical, Kate. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're super excited that you're joining us. So, first question. When did that saying "Everything happens for a reason" start to ring hollow for you? Was that something that you were you've always been skeptical of, or did something change for you when you were diagnosed with stage four cancer at thirty five? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I'd probably like to
3: imagine that I was so sophisticated that I didn't need that phrase.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so I was probably like an early disdainer, but. Uh, you know, I spent so long studying the prosperity gospel—the idea that God wants to bless you with health and wealth and happiness—that I think I, I had really gotten used to it as this sort of synthetic explanation for the good and the bad stuff that comes up in your life, and and maybe I used it a little bit as a motivation. Like when something good happened, it just proved to everyone how insanely hardworking I was and how just scrappy and cool, and nothing can stop me. So. I don't know. It was um, I was probably like a secret believer in that for quite a while before I got hit pretty hard. And then I think maybe it was the second I got sick that I started to realize how cruel it felt to mm-hmm. hear someone say that when I was really struggling to understand why something so terrible could happen to me.
0: Yeah. And I don't think even, you know, I don't think any of us would say we subscribe to the prosperity gospel, but I think it is something kind of like a default for a lot of Americans that like, if you do the right thing, good things will happen to you. Religious and
1: non-religious alike. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you had studied this academically. What was it? What changed when you were actually going through it? Um, Yeah. Yeah. What was that like?
3: Well, I think maybe I didn't understand just what you're saying about how there's both like a very religious and a very secular version where like someone would run into me and then it was like a race to come up with a an explanation as quickly as possible for why it happened to me and not them. Mm-hmm. So like, oh, is it in your family? Um, you know, huh. maybe it was something you ate. Like there's just the rush to kind of figure out why everything happened. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I'd realize that there are like like the whole foods version where if you just eat all the right, you know, I, I don't want to say essential oils, uh, that was just people were too busy sort of rubbing them on me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so much whole wheat, everything. So much kale, so much green drink. You know, there's like a health, prosperity gospel, and then then there's just like a positive thinking, good vibes only prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. And then like, I mean, I was in Aspen recently and they have their own prosperity gospel. Just the idea that you can climb every mountain and so on, that there's just the world is yours to conquer. And maybe just everyone in their twenties is supposed to believe that, but mm -hmm. I really did believe it, I think.
2: And Kate, you've mentioned that even healthcare professionals and and you've interacted with lots of people in the field can say really really problematic things along these lines. Is it is it somehow worse coming from people who should kind of know better? Right. Oh my gosh. Totally.
3: Like last week I was being wheeled into a procedure and like just like I'm in the gurney, I'm like in the in the sad medical gown, looking really scared. The most and dignified was, of
1: positions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was yeah. feeling
3: all my dignity. I'm just swimming <laughs> with you. Mm-hmm. And like the nurse looks down on my at my chart and was like, "Oh, colon cancer at 35. Man, it really must be the stuff you guys are eating."
1: <laughs> oh my god! <gosh. laughs> wow. oh, oh wow, buddy! Wow. Oh
3: man, I'd like to say. It's bizarre, but I think it's probably the most human thing on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just to want to look at something hard and then and just see a little bit past it because it's too painful.
0: So you you also come into contact with a lot of um, pastors uh, because you work at Duke Divinity School. Um, so do you do you hear similar things from people who are working in Christian ministry?
3: Yeah, you know, and not just because I work here, but. Thank God. Duke Diviniscule was like kind of the good guy in my life for the last couple years because I found in, I don't know, in mainstream Christianity, the ability to hold the tension between, you know, believing that God is good, for example, and not necessarily being able to see all the fruits of it here on earth. And I was so grateful for the space they held open to me to be a believer, but not be proof of anything Mm. terribly inspirational (laughs) yeah yeah also like just because of the way we're set up i can kind of wander the hallways looking for spiritual inspiration when i felt bad (laughs) so i did a lot of public crying here in these hallways yeah Mm. how do
0: you so once you give up on the idea that like being super faithful will lead to good outcomes in your life Mm -hmm. how do you how do you think about prayer and prayer being effective um yeah yeah
3: yeah well i think probably And not to just pick on the word, but I think I'd probably give up the word effective, Mm. um, only because that's the part that's not up to me. So I was actually kind of grateful to spend the number of years I did, uh, in Pentecostalism studying healing rallies, because what I was so touched by was the total audaciousness that we get to pray to God and we expect God to listen and sometimes we expect God to even change his mind. <laughs> so I I love the boldness of it. I just I've just given up on what happens after I pray it. So I just I, I pray boldly for healing and for others. And I think God gives us that dignity in prayer, but I will not measure effectiveness because I think mm. I can't. Mm.
1: I guess, what would you say to someone who says that, you know, these lies or these efforts to Mm -hmm. gain control over a situation are—they're actually harmless, right? Like, maybe it works as a placebo um, at the very least, or maybe it is helpful to Mm -hmm. some people.
3: Well— I think maybe one of the most beautiful things about what the prosperity gospel does is it helps people set their horizons. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if if you didn't expect much from your life or other people didn't expect much of you or because of structural inequality, there's all kinds of reasons why people don't have enough. I've seen it have a tremendous effect on people's self-esteem and their sort of joyful expectation that life can give you more. And so in those cases, I'm always kind of happy for people. Um, I think the tricky part is though, when you have to hold a little more ambiguity about sort of the good things and the bad things, did you really deserve every wonderful surprise that came your way? Right. And uh, I find it can be a little overly reductive Mm -hmm. and make people a bit, um, I think cruel toward, uh, those of us who are not always so lucky.
1: Well, it's such a bizarre. I mean, I think a way we talk about illness, mm-hmm. uh, cancer in particular. I think it's just filled with it. It's a lot. All the war metaphors. It's like you're in yeah. a battle. You beat yeah. it. Mm-hmm. You win. You fight. It,
3: yeah, winners and losers, totally. And I mean, I've tried to embrace it. Like, I am a, I am a loser. I, I am, I am absolutely on the losing team. But now I just kind of think, you know, I sort of think Christianity is on the losing team. Mm-hmm. Jesus' life was certainly a bummer. um all the kingdom come and not yet usually focuses on the on the not yet that we're waiting till God's reign comes, and in the meantime, we're going to be on the losing side, so come join me <laughs>
0: you You talk in your book about the difference of of the like seasons of Easter and being people of Lent um how how's your understanding of of those two different kind of flavors of being Christian changed um, mm. with your sickness? Um, and where yeah. do you where do you find yourself now? Yeah.
3: Oh man, well this Lent was so rich, uh, not just because I have just really committed to swearing during the forty days in which <laughs> Jesus marches toward the cross, um, but because I I mean. Well, first, I, I still can't believe I'm here. That I'm three years in, and that my illness is wonderfully chronic right now. And Lent just gives me an appreciation for the failures of, you know, our sin and our lives as chronic. That God walks with us in the sometimes just through the seemingly endless dark, and we get to be so excited that someday Easter is coming and. This year, I went to an Easter morning service, and one of my very favorite uh, pastors preached, and he was diagnosed in the same moments as me and so every time I see him three years out preaching on the sunrise service easter morning, i think I just I thank God for small and big miracles, and the chance just to say, someday, things will be made right again
1: if if you could maybe like touch one group of people. Uh, especially whether it's healthcare workers or ministers or friends mm. or family, what what group of people needs to kind of, or like, would you choose to kind of improve the most about how we deal with this and supporting people uh, that are going through this?
3: Man. Well, wow. What a thoughtful question. I really, I'm so grateful for nurses. I feel like they're kind of usually the front lines, them and um, hospital chaplains where they walk in the door and they have to bring something. I mean, they have to sort of prop up a space that seems unsupportable, and I wish I could also just communicate incredible gratitude for all those uh, who step into those professions. So I don't know, I if I could com- create loving community and a little more theological language for a certain profession, I would definitely pick nurses because I heart them very much. Yeah, mm-hmm. is there a
0: specific nurse uh, that you like? You are especially grateful for who? Oh,
3: my Meg. Yeah, she looks like a beautiful Anne Hathaway, just sort of floated into the
0: <laughs> oncology ward. And what, <laughs> what does she do well? What what, what makes her stand out?
3: Uh, well, she's my age, and mm. that could have been really awkward, because mm. usually I get sort of like tragedy face. I always think mm. of it as Cocker Spaniel face, where it looks like <laughs> someone is like, no, like <laughs> tilted to one side out of the sheer weight of pity. And uh, And Meg just made it seem like it was totally normal that we were in there together and that she was going to be fun and kind and cool. But then in this one little moment, she sat down next to me and I mean, it was in the middle of treatment and she said it in the lightest way. She just said, "Um, I just want you to know I lost a child. Mm. And the way she said it, it wasn't like she was trying to dump on me. She was just building that bridge so that she was communicating that she knew what it was like when everything falls apart and that we were on the same side. And mm-hmm. I I I couldn't be more grateful for the mids of the world. Yeah.
0: Do you feel like you've um become more vulnerable like that in your own <laughs> interactions? Yeah. I'm a,
1: I'm a mess. <laughs> yeah. <totally. laughs>
3: yeah. Absolutely. Um,
0: yeah. and and do you yeah. see that as a gift?
3: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, have you done Enneagram stuff so far, you guys? Uh, have your- we we, we yeah. haven't done it on the podcast, but, but I know I'm a two. Yeah. <laughs> I've
1: never. <yeah.
3: laughs> I think I'm an eight. I don't know. So as a two, you know what it's like to worry about dying of just the sheer weight of empathy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I have concerned about that. I You know, I think part of what was so good about that for me in this stage of my life is... um. You know, I I I'd picked a profession where I could study for 15 years and then sort of climb, just keep climbing the ladder. And it knocked me so far down that it made me realize like this is, you know, this, this life can only be done together and we're all going to be trading places in our misery. So may as well just accept that and open your little heart, or else it's going to be a rougher road.
1: (laughs) Amen to that.
2: Amen. Kate, thank you so much for taking time in your day to talk to us. Uh, It's been a wonderful honor. One final question. If you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be, and why? Oh, man.
3: Uh, Okay, well, I just read the latest, um, you know, Sister Helen Prejean, the Mm -hmm. dead man walking. Yes, yes. I would canonize her. Oh, chisel. I yeah. love her so much. She's super kind and smart and brave. And we should all be like her.
0: She, she's actually been on the show before. And mm-hmm. she also has God. like the
3: best accent in
0: the entire that, world. She really is. Yeah. Uh, well, all
1: right. That's the cool. All right. Well, St. Helen pray Sean. <laughs> yeah. Kate, Kate, thanks so much again.
3: Thank you.
0: Yeah. Hey, and
1: where nice can, and what's, what's the next book and where can people find it?
3: Oh, um, my next book is The Preacher's Wife. Um, it's about uh, women in power. And uh, yeah, and then I've got my podcast. Everything happens if everyone wants to listen to other people kind of muscling through.
1: Yes, great. it's awesome. and it's great. Yeah. yeah. So thanks again. And okay, thanks Yeah. It. Have thanks, a great Kate. day.
3: Yeah. yeah.
1: Take care. <laughs> yeah. Bye.
3: Bye. Bye.
2: This episode was made possible by Hesburgh, an award-winning documentary film opening in select theaters nationwide on May 3rd. Hesburgh offers a fascinating look at more than 50 years of American history, as seen through the eyes of Father Theodore Martin Hesburgh, longtime president of the University of Notre Dame and America's most well-known Catholic priest. Critics are calling Hesburgh a powerful and extraordinary film about one of America's all-time greatest educators. Group sales available. More information at hesburghfilm.com. All right,
0: now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga?
2: So this week, I've got a consolation. Uh, Earlier this week, I was part of this panel that was led by the Faith in Public Life, which is a social justice organization made up of clergy and faith uh, leaders, both Catholic and not. Um, And more often than not, when I'm professionally talking about my faith or my struggles with my faith, it's always in a really white space Um, and this panel uh, aside from the moderator John Goering who's a white man um, it was just five people of color and it was four women including myself and a Latino man and it was just really refreshing to be able to talk about my faith and the work that I do here at Jesuitical the work that I do as a writer in a space with other people who you know, I feel like sometimes I have to handhold when I'm talking about certain things because I'm like, okay, if our listeners are white, then I want to make sure they get it. Um, But here I didn't have to do that. And it was just really refreshing to be in that space. And it was extremely consoling to just see that, you know, God was present in the experiences and lives of people who look just like me. So that was a really wonderful consolation. Yeah.
1: And now that you're Your co-hosts, at least, are grateful for the hand-holding that you do sometimes, and that is a ministry that you do. And I am glad that you were able to get this different experience, too. Thank you. But thank you for all that you do always. Yeah. What do you got, Ashley?
0: I also have a consolation. It's a little meta, I guess. (laughs) I was, as I often do on Tuesdays, thinking about what I was going to say here. Um, And I was just like looking back on my, my spring, and it's been a really good month for me. Like there have just been like a bunch of things where like in the moment I was like, oh, this is going to be a consolation. This is going to be a consolation. I would mean, like um, I went to the NCAA national championships and UVA won and then I ran a half marathon and then I had a great Easter. And so I was like thinking back on that. And then there was like this voice in my head being like, that was not a consolation. You were just having fun. Um, You need to be a little bit deeper. Um, And this came after our conversation with Kate Bowler and the prosperity gospel. And it just felt wrong to be like, oh, like all these things are going well in my life right now. So like that must be where God is. Um, But I like kept thinking and I was like, okay, so what is the consolation here or the desolation? I thought like I didn't want to deny that God was there in those happy moments, Um, and so I just thought about, okay, so I didn't earn these. This was just, like, sheer gift. Like, I didn't earn it, but I did not not deserve it, and it was just a huge gift from the people around me that made all of these experiences so meaningful and and from God. Um, So kind of, like, realizing that it was a gift frees me up to, like, be okay with just having fun, but also... Realizing that, like when I inevitably do face like a more trying time, that doesn't mean that God isn't there then too.
1: So yeah, I mean that's the that's like the challenge is to not also feel guilty about the good things happening in your life, yeah, and taking that to prayer.
0: Mm -hmm. What do you have, Zach?
1: Um, I have a consolation this week as well. All three, it's Easter. Things must be going well. There was baptisms this Sunday at my parish, uh, which is, it makes Mass a little long, but it's ultimately a really great thing, because at my parish, the way they do it is, it's just during the normal 1115 liturgy that a lot of people go to regularly, and they'll take the, the nine babies and the parents and godparents to the back of the church, and they'll baptize them, and then the priest will take the baby and... Hold the baby up like Rafiki holds up Simba in The Lion King and introduces the new Christian to the congregation. And you've got people from the choir loft like careening down to get a look at all the cuteness that's happening. And it made me realize that this is such a joyful moment, not just because there's cute babies, but also because I realized I don't actually see random strangers' sacraments very often. I feel like there's this trend in American Catholic life where you are typically only at a baptism if it's someone you know. And so you're kind of focused on like how it's affecting your family or a funeral, or a marriage, or any of these different things, you're really, it's, you usually know the person. And this sort of made me realize that God in the church is bigger than myself in my relationship to even the people that I do know at the parish. And so while there are still these terrible things happening in the church, it's still growing. And I think maybe, I don't know, we should go to more strangers' sacraments. <laughs> <Just> show
0: up. <laughs> yeah, totally.
1: I don't know. I think I think that would be a good thing for us. I don't know how to fix that, but just a thought.
0: Yeah, and those babies
1: <laughs> are adorable. And they're adorable.
0: <laughs> All right. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Jesuit Formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Production help from Kieran Freeman. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to Catholic Lion King. Judge Whittackle is recorded in the William J. Lochert studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.